Bill Street Caravan is brought to you by the generous support of the Memphis Convention and Visitors Bureau on the web at memphistravel.com. Memphis, home of the blues and the birthplace of rock and roll. I'm your co-host, Pat Mitchell-Worley. And I'm Kevin Cubbins. And you're listening to The Sounds of Memphis on Bill Street Caravan. Today on Bill Street Caravan, we're joined in the studio by Rick Clark, music editor for Oxford American Magazine. Today's program will be the first of a two-part series that has us taking a look and a listen to the annual Oxford American Music Issue. In a break from our usual format, we've asked Rick to come play DJ and commentator with us as we present a live in the studio listening session. That's all coming up right now on Bill Street Caravan. Well, we have got a lot on the show today. It's going to be a pretty fabulous show. I'm very excited about it. I can barely contain myself, in fact. We've got Rick Clark here, who's a music editor of the Oxford American Magazine. That is the coolest job. Mm -hmm. Let's start there. (laughs) And so, Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So how does one get that job? Let's start there. Not that I'm trying to take it, but how does one get that job? Well, you start with Jim Dickinson. That's been said before, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim was gracious enough to suggest me to Mark Smirnoff, the founder of the magazine, when Mark was considering the idea of doing an annual music issue that would have a CD accompany it. We started talking in 96, I believe it was. And at the time, the issues weren't state-by-state uh, state thematically. They were more generally anything from and about the South. And Rick, real quick, I want to clarify, in case some of our listeners aren't aware of what Oxford American is, I think Oxford American is something our listeners would enjoy. Oxford American is a Southern literary journal. It's it's a wonderful magazine, essays, short stories, articles on culture, food even. And it's really something. You guys just do a great job with it. I'll also, you know, throw in, Rick, that you've been also a music writer for years, contributing to Mix Magazine. You've always been a friend of Memphis music. I've come back to Memphis many times when, you know, to do a panel to help musicians here, give them some knowledge to help them move forward. It's it's like you live in Nashville now, but you still have Memphis deep in your soul. (laughs) I will always be a Memphian. There's no way around it. I was born in Memphis. I lived here 38 years. I have to come to Memphis regularly for my soul fix. (laughs) Memphis is an incredibly special place. You know, we know that. I think there are millions of people around the world that know that. And um, so I feel blessed to be a Memphian. I feel very fortunate. Being from this town shapes your worldview in ways that are very, very difficult to explain to people. And you can't shake it either. I had a friend of mine who was an editor of another magazine, and he was in town, and he liked coming to Memphis. And so he said, San Francisco is one of the great cities of the world. Give me a list of some of the other cities that you think are great cities of the world. And I said, Memphis. And he says, oh, come on. (laughs) You know, Memphis is a cool city, but it isn't. And I says, no, really, you think about it. You just think about what came out of this area. You know, what is the terminology within 100 miles of Memphis? 
more, it's, yeah, there are more rock and roll Hall of Fame inductees within 100 miles of Memphis. And there's more Grammy winners within a certain radius of the, of the city. It's it, it's sort of it's sort of crazy if you look at the roots of American music that we got it. <laughs> we I got mean, it's it. amazing, and and I I think about it and and being born and raised in the city and how like you said about how it shapes it really does shape who you are in a real deep way. Mm-hmm. Well, that I think that's the perfect introduction to the CD because yeah, it's, it, it's definitely got a a great Memphis feel to it. So how's the show going to go today, Kevin? As most of our listeners know, our our format is live music. And we usually go into venues and and we're there with the bands and we bring that experience to our audience. Um, This week, we're having a listening party. And again, it's live, but it's live here in the Bill Street Caravan studio. So it's a little different, but um, I think the the feel and the vibe should be similar. So Rick, we're ready for the guided tour of the greatest mixtape ever. Let's start with the first track. I'm a big fan of this first track. It's Bill Street Caravan founder Sid Selvage doing That's How I Got to Memphis. It was a very perfect thing to open up the CD with That's How I Got to Memphis. You have a song that's a Tom T. Hall song, a guy that's associated with Nashville, Mm -hmm. and a song that in many ways is associated with Solomon Burke. Mm -hmm. But I think when Sid does this song... In my mind, it was a definitive, it is a definitive version. His voice is one of the most singularly distinctive voices in folk music. The way that he could so effortlessly hit those high notes and do them in such a way that displayed a vulnerability that was emotionally profound. I was slayed by it the first time I heard it. I mean, it's... It is drop dead gorgeous, and in the the notes in the magazine, as a matter of fact, I even mentioned that it sounds like he needed the air of Memphis to even exist. Mm-hmm. You can feel that in his performance. So right now we're going to take a listen to Sid Selvage. That's how I got to Memphis. If you love somebody enough You will follow them wherever they go That's how I got to Memphis That's how I got to Memphis If you love somebody enough You will go where their heart wants to go That's how I got to Memphis how I got to Memphis I know if you've seen You will tell me Cause you're my friend I've got to find Find out the trouble she's in If you tell me She isn't here I will follow the trail of her tears It's how I got to Memphis how I got to Memphis 
would get mad and she used to say She'd be coming back to Memphis someday That's how I got to Memphis That's how I got to Memphis Now I haven't eaten a bite Or slept for three days or three nights That's how I got to Memphis How I got to Memphis I gotta find her And tell her I love her so I'll never rest Until she tells me why she had to go Thank you for your precious time Forgive me if I start crying How I got to Memphis How I got to Memphis How I got to Memphis I hope that being on this Oxford American CD as well as your tribute sells a lot of copies of that album. Mm -hmm. And I got word this morning from a friend of mine that Omnivore is talking about putting out Call to the Morning. Yeah, that's going to happen. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Guys, go out and get that one. And and I have to say that that Sid would also be very proud that he is back-to-back with Phineas Newborn Jr. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, up next we've got Phineas Newborn, perhaps Memphis's most talented, most gifted musician. Amazing, amazing Um, artist. One of the world's greatest jazz pianist. Here's Memphis Blues from Phineas Newborn.
That was Phineas Newborn Jr. with Memphis Blues. So, Rick, how does this one fit into your collection here? Obviously, Phineas has many albums where he really gets to strut his technique, Mm -hmm. which is phenomenal technique. I decided to do Memphis Blues partially because it's a handy song, partially because of the title, Mm -hmm. partially because it was a side of Phineas that showed him in a very relaxed and playful mode. It's like you can almost sense that he's having a little bit of fun Mm -hmm. while he's playing it. This isn't anything he's having to work at. It made perfect sense to have that song with Phineas right after Sid. That's how I got to Memphis. It just felt like going into those that flow like that made perfect sense. Yeah, it feels great. His playing, when he's really going over the top, it never lacks a kind of melodic integrity and heart. It doesn't sound like he's just showboating for the sake of showboating. One of the things besides my love for Memphis and the fact that Dickinson figures in largely, there is a love letter to to Dickinson that goes throughout a lot of this disc and the magazine. And Jim recorded this. Oh, really? Yes. If you're a a follower of Jim Dickinson, because I was just thinking here to myself, you know, we go out of Phineas to... The, the total music iconoclast. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was ragged and raw, and and you would never guess that something as well planned out and sketched as Phineas would fit into the Jim Dickinson style of Take No Prisoners, you know? <laughs> but he was also, you know, Phineas's biggest fan. So it made sense in a way, and also because of the Dickinson connection, but to have Sid first and have Dickinson tied to the second track with Phineas and Dickinson with Sid. You see what I'm saying? You're already sort of creating this little puzzle where each track is paying tribute to the next track. It's like a setting in a ring and a jewel. It's like each song takes turns being the, the setting and then being the jewel and then being the setting. This is an example of how that works, and and you'll see that throughout the entire CD. Nicely done. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to our next track. This is James Luther Dickinson with The Judgment. Thank you. 
It's like, makes me think of being on the top floor of the old King Cotton Hotel listening to music. But what I'm listening to is filtered through a lot of psychedelics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when, when that record came in when I was working at Pop Tunes and I saw the cover and just the photo of this guy standing with that smirk on top of this gravestone with his name on it was something that made me very curious to listen to it. The whole album is amazing, but the judgment was the one that stuck with me. And then when I found out from Mary Lindsay Dickinson's wife uh, that that was hers, it made me happy to know that we had gone in that direction. So Rick, so after the Dickinson track, we've got Gus Cannon. What's the relationship there? Well, in the spirit of what I said a couple of minutes ago about things being settings and then becoming jewels and then becoming settings again, well, Dickinson was the one who turned me on to Gus Cannon, Can You Blame the Colored Man? He was the one who said, you got to hear this. And then he told me the story about the song. And I always loved it because of the complexity of the story. It always sounded like a multi-leveled song. It didn't just sound like a one-dimensional mm -hmm. story. It's not, a, it's not a, your usual call-and-response 12-bar blues song. Mm -hmm. There's a story. There's a social statement to the song. Oh, it's totally a statement because he's singing. He has a white audience that in their kind of smug or whatever you want to call it way, when he was playing the song, he was considering that those ears were hearing it, but he was also considering his own audience, his own listeners who he was with every day who understood the subtext, the subversiveness of the song. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting song to me musically and very sly, the performance. 
This is Gus Cannon with Can You Blame the Colored Man? is a literary magazine and the music issue is where the literary concept funnels through music. This is a perfect example where the music and the artist really get addressed in a holistic way and that is also true with the next song that we're going to cover which is Charlie Rich. What's the story behind this song Rick? Joe Hagen wrote an amazing piece that gives you a revealing glimpse of Charlie Rich and the dynamic between he and his songwriter wife in a piece where the lens are a pile of fan letters written by women sent to Charlie Rich. (laughs) There are even pictures of the letters, and it's amazing. Wow. They, They actually went back and found some of these people. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. When you read this piece and you experience Margaret's just journey trying to deal with Charlie Rich and his ups and downs, it's a great, great compliment to each other. Let's hear some Charlie Rich. I don't know how to tell her 
I didn't get that raise and pay today. And I know how much she wanted the dress in Baker's window. And it breaks my heart to see her have to wait and cancel all the plans she made to celebrate. But I can count on her to take it with a smile and not a little ups and downs like ponies on a merry-go-round and no one grabs the brass ring every time she don't mind she wears a so long I guess we'll gather dust another year and the daffodils are blooming that she planted way last fall upon the hill and over by the gate the Lord knows I hate to say again we'll have to But you can bet that she'll just take it with a smile and not a frown. She knows that life has its little ups and downs, like ponies on a Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Rick. We are going to take a quick little break on Bill Street Caravan so we can have some local announcements. We'll be back with more from the Sounds of Memphis in our special Oxford American Magazine Music Issue Edition.
Bill Street Caravan is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Bill Street Caravan is also made possible by an award from the Tennessee Arts Commission and Arts Memphis. Bill Street Caravan is brought to you in part by AutoZone, FedEx, and First Tennessee Bank. Thanks for tuning in to the Sounds of Memphis on Bill Street Caravan. I'm your co-host, Pat Mitchell-Worley. And I'm Kevin Cubbins. We're sitting here with Rick Clark taking a look and a listen to the companion CDs to the new Oxford American Music Issue. This year's issue celebrates the music of Tennessee, and it just recently hit the stands. This is one that you're going to want to pick up for the collection. There are so many songs that you'll want to keep with you along the way. You'll be and listening to this over and over. Rick, you've done a fabulous job of putting all this music together, and when we started this, I had so many questions, but you've been so great explaining the process to us. You know, because I, I, I sat there saying, how do you recall all of these songs? You know, do you just file music away in your head and you just hear it when you... <laughs> it's almost like a case of be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Because I remember when I was a kid, it was like, I want all the music I can possibly have. And and I started working at Pop Tunes Records in 1970. And... I spent. I always spend my whole paycheck just on <laughs> records. I did the same thing when I worked at a record store. Exact same thing. I mean, it's it's crazy. And and I mean, by 1973, I probably had at least five thousand albums. I was, I was going crazy. I remember back in the 60s, middle 60s, as a kid, I would make top 40 charts. Right on. And they would be. They would be. Of course. My top Your 40. Your top 40. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember specifically on June 6th, 1966, after I came home from the Memphis Athletic Club swim team practice, sitting down going, it is 6666. Six, six, six. This will never happen again in my life, and I'm doing my top 40 chart. You know, I've always been that guy. And I remember being with Jody Stevens and a bunch of writers or something at the rendezvous. This was years ago. And one of the things I hate is when someone comes up to me and says, what was the number one song and blah, 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 you know, and you're, you're going, oh, man, these guys are like Stump Rick again, mm -hmm. you know. But this one night I was on my game. And one of them had one of those Billboard books. And I was like, I was hitting, well, this was number one in this year, and this charted at 23 at this year, and this was on this label, and this was the catalog number. You know, it was oh like, God. it was just stupid. I can't stupid. even imagine noticing all of that. See, at Pop Tunes, you would go out on the floor, they had the demo records. You know, someone would, let's say, I'm going to get a Van Cliburn record or a Todd Rundgren or a Bill Withers. They would bring the demo record, because you could listen to the records out on the floor. It was, a, it was unique. And they would bring it up to the counter, and then we would have to go to the wall in the back to get what we called the fresh copy. Well, the fresh copies were alphabetical by record label and then numerical. Wow. So we learned records, we learned our labels, and we learned all the prefixes and, the, and you know, the catalog numbers. Wow. And to this day, in my collection, all of my anthologies, all of those are alphabetical by record label and numerical. And that's how I still, to this day, deal with my collection. And, you know, my work as a music supervisor for film and TV, it's, it's sort of interesting because 
it's come in extremely helpful for me because you get really good at uh, sort of knowing the rhythm of the weird releases and the schedules and what kind of stuff represented the flavor of a label at a certain time. I remember one time when I was working on that uh, George Clooney film, um, Up in the Air. I was working on that movie. I was writing a book, and I was producing 26 episodes of a radio show for XM Radio. And every week I'd have a counter for how many songs that I would listen to. And I was averaging, maybe not all the way through, but, you know, if I was listening to even parts of a song, I was going through between 1,200 and 1,400 songs a week. Wow. Through this process, you know, one of the things that that really identifies you as a music lover is that when you look at the tracks that you've chosen for this, they're not the the ones that immediately come to mind when you think of those artists. These are deep cuts. Yeah, these are deep cuts. Like our next song is an Ann Peebles song. It wasn't one of her hits. It wasn't a song that everyone talks about. This is a song that, I mean, I had to go back and find it. You know, this is also, as you mentioned, one of those songs that defining the time it came out on High Records and High had so many um, incarnations, I guess. There were so many periods of the high record sound. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, 75 was... Peak. Yeah, it was just like there was so much going on. Yeah. And, and and Peebles was a hot act. So talk a little bit about Beware. Well, first of all, even though I've just said that I listen to all this music and everything, there's no such thing as a one-man band. People always are bringing things to your attention. Mm-hmm. The Oxford American is Roger Hodge, this editorial staff of Max and Julianne and, and Eliza, and it's, it's a bunch of people that are coming together to do something. I happen to be the music guy, and even though I'm the music guy, I'm always being turned on to things. I'm always asking people for things. So I was with Willie Mitchell's son, Boo. I was over there at Royal, and I said, I'm wanting to find a great end people song. I'm wanting to find something that is something that most people wouldn't think about. Boo, why don't you tell me what is your song? What is that one and people song that you would say no one knows about, really, and it's the, it's the ticket? And he said, beware. And so Boo gets credit for it. To me, it's just curating passion that you're feeling around. I mean, when he turned me on to it, I was vaguely familiar with the album. I have it. And so I just went straight to it and listened to it, and I went, oh, my God, this is really an embodiment of a lot of what makes Ann People so great. I mean, it's a killer track and a killer performance, and it should have been a song that was a big hit. We've talked about it. Let's listen to it. Here's Ann Peebles with Beware.
there's that distinct, dirty, raw, high record sound. Up next is another fella who has a distinctive sound. It's the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Now, he couldn't do a Tennessee music compilation without including Elvis Presley on it. But once again, it's not one of the huge Elvis hits. He was a very complex artist from his pop sounds, his country sound. I mean, Elvis did it all well. Like you said, the idea of having a Tennessee collection without Elvis would be crazy. The challenge was trying to find the right Elvis song. I didn't want to just use a hit, because you're going to find that on a million collections, Mm -hmm. you know? And I started listening to tons of, I mean, I just went through everything. And as I was going through the collection, something was bugging me to say, just stop where you're at with Elvis here, go to the gospel stuff. I listened to everything I could get my hands on and was struck with the idea that Elvis is in capital letters everywhere. He's suspicious minds and hound dog, and he's he's these larger-than-life huge records in this iconic presence. But the gospel music was where I felt I actually heard the real man. It's not to say you didn't hear something of him on the other records or what made him distinctive. But on the gospel records, the best of them especially, I was struck with a palpable feeling on many of those tracks that I was hearing someone that was so enamored and and humbled by the music that you hear this reverence in his voice that is so real. And of all the songs that I went through known only to him, like many of these songs are chosen, they have sort of a multi-layered kind of story going with them. Known only to him was a song that the Statesman did, and it would, they were a, a group that Elvis admired tremendously, and there was an arrangement by Jake Hess. This version is like an homage to Jake Hess's arrangement. And the way that it is performed is so intimate all the trappings of Elvis in capital letters are gone, and you hear this person using his gifts to articulate through music something that means a lot to him. The interesting thing was is that Jake Hess would later sing this very song at Elvis's graveside years later. And so I had to include this song because it had a number of layers to it. This is like the greatest mixtape ever. Yes. <laughs> well, let's listen to Elvis. Here's Elvis Presley with Known Only to Him. Why alone? 
heavy cross I must bear Then he tells me in my prayer It's because I am trustworthy He gives me strength far more than my share That was the king of rock and roll doing a gospel number. Up next, we've got our good buddy, William Lee Ellis. Pat, right. you, Pat, you want to talk about Cousin Bill? Cousin Bill. Um, <laughs> he has um, been a feature host for Bill Street Caravan, and he was the music writer for the uh, Commercial Appeal, the daily paper in Memphis, and he is a walking encyclopedia of music knowledge. He's one of those guys that he's got it all stored away, much like you do, Rick. Well, he's a master guitar player. Yes, he is. Amazing guitarist. The interesting thing to me is usually music writers are people who don't get any respect when it comes to being musicians or songwriters. Right, it's like the old saying, those who can do and those who can't are music writers. <laughs> exactly. And and that's not always the case. Never. It's never the case. Uh, you know, I wrote songs and played professionally, played music for years before I started writing for magazines. I even had song cuts. And in the case of Bill Ellis, he's a, he was editor at the Commercial Appeal, mm-hmm. and this was produced by another writer who is also a great musician, Larry Nager. And, who is and the so music, he was the music editor at the Commercial the Appeal. The Commercial Appeal, the Cincinnati Inquirer, and now he writes for a slew of publications. He also wrote in the Oxford American Music Issue. He oh. wrote a feature about the McCrary's. On one level, I wanted to give my writer buddies who, who understand yeah. the pain <laughs> <laughs> of interviewing someone lots of times that doesn't have half the skill you do. And then there's someone like Bill Ellis who can play circles around, mm-hmm. you know. And Larry. I mean, Larry's a, a wonderful player. I mean, these are really talented people. If you're a passionate musician and you've also got other skills that's going to spill over into those other skills. You're going to be about music in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Outside of just playing. Well, it got to a point for me years ago, even though I had done a lot of things, as Pat knows, I spent probably 20 years downplaying writing about music because I was so tired of being lumped into the, exactly the analogy that you use. Really? I mean, I, I just, it didn't matter if I'd been published in Billboard or Rolling Stone or something. It was, I didn't want my name brought up with any publications because I wanted to be regarded as a creative person. Plus, another thing you're always fighting is that every musician has gotten a bad review before and have that animosity towards, you know, yeah, right. towards in some cases, writer. some cases. In that spirit, <laughs> I had a rule of thumb as a writer. It's uh, never write anything that you wouldn't say to that person's face. 
Well, my problem was I didn't mind saying it to that person's face. <laughs> well, I, I never cared. Try to be nice. I never cared. <laughs> <laughs> never cared. I, I, I admit I only wrote two bad reviews in my entire music writing career. And William Lee Ellis actually knows that whole story. We we were really good friends when that whole thing happened. Um, well, let's listen to let's listen to to Bill Ellis. I still call him Bill. He's but Bill. He's <laughs> hey, Bill. Up next, we've got one of my favorite all-time artists, and that's Buddy Miller, and he's joined with his wife, Julie Miller, on this track. But what's really unique about this song is that it's a Lucy Campbell song. Lucy Campbell being a gospel artist who wrote so many songs. I mean, mean, hundreds of songs, and most people don't know who she is. Mm -hmm. If you go to church or you listen to Christian music, you are probably listening to one of her songs. She was inducted into the Memphis Music Hall of Fame. So they have been doing a really good job of trying to spread spread the gospel. Hmm. <laughs> no pun intended. That was funny, Pat. Good one. <laughs> Pretty good one. there. About Lucy Campbell. <laughs> Again, giving credit where credit is due, I was talking to Bill Ellis, and we were just talking about music and the Oxford American Tennessee issue. And Bill pitched me an idea, saying, I'd love to do a piece on Lucy Campbell. 
I thought, well, that's a great idea. Lucy Campbell, she would be perfect. She's a Memphian. She's got this catalog of music, and no one talks about her. And so while I was brainstorming about it, one of the ideas that I had was I was hoping that on the Oxford American CDs, I would have some new music specially recorded for the CDs. So I mentioned to Bill, it would be cool if I could find someone to do a Lucy Campbell song. Something Within is a song that I was very familiar with. I mean, even Wilson Pickett did it. And I mean, a lot of people recorded it. It dawned on me that I wanted Buddy, and I thought, instead of getting a Buddy Miller song, Buddy would be the perfect person to produce and interpret this song. And I also, Larry Nager, this is this is, goes back to this multi-layered way of being, wow. but see, Larry Nager and I were talking about a piece on the McCrary sister. So I thought, okay... Nashville, Buddy, Julie, McCrary Sisters, Lucy Campbell, Memphis, a new recording. Let's, I'll go to Buddy and see if I can see if he would be into the idea of him and Julie and uh, the McCrary's doing something within. And Buddy's a big fan of the magazine, and Buddy immediately said, sure, I'd love to do this. And so Buddy and I talked about some ideas about the arrangement and this and that, and the end of the day, Buddy just rocked it, you know. He just laid it out there, and, and it's, it's intimate, it's dynamic. Two of the McCrary sisters do great lead vocal performances, and Buddy and Julie sing on it. And um, by the way, Something Within, I believe, was Lucy Campbell's first song that she wrote. I think she was 19 when she wrote it. It's a, it's a great song, so I hope you guys enjoy this. Something within me, something within me, pull back the rain, pull back the rain. Something within me, something within me, banishes pain, banishes pain. Something within me, something within me, I can't explain, I can't explain. And all that I know, all I know, I got something within me, something within preachers and teachers. They made their appeal. They're fighting like soldiers out on a battlefield. Went to their pleading, their poor heart ears. All that I know, all I know, to something within. Something
Buddy and Julie Miller doing Lucy Campbell's Something Within. We're all out of time, but we're going to pick back up where we left off next week as we continue our listening session with Rick Clark. I want to thank Rick and Oxford American for coming on our program today. It's been an extremely educational and, and enlightening episode. I'm really looking forward to next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Sounds of Memphis on Bill Street Caravan. Find us on Facebook for more updates and special features relating to all the great music that comes from Memphis. And please support public radio. You're not going to find programming like this anywhere else. Again, next week we'll have part two of the Oxford American Music Issue. It's going to be a great show. Until next time, I'm Pat Mitchell-Worley. And I'm Kevin Cubbins. You're listening to the Sounds of Memphis on Bill Street Caravan.